Oof. Hey, Dad, can I help you with all this mulch? Uh, yeah, I could definitely use the help. Thanks, Aria. Corbin, could you help me take Tia out right now, please? I already took Tia out, Mom. Corbin. Hey, uh, could I get some help with these dishes? Someone want to dry these dishes for me? I'd be kitchen. happy to, Dad. You'd be happy to? Well, thanks, Ellie. That's surprising. Happy? Hey, Mom, I passed his drums today without being asked. Awesome job, dude. Aria, you borrowed my eyeliner and you broke off the tip. Well, you're the one who left the flat iron on. But lucky for you, I'm the one who turned it off and saved the house from burning down. Hey, babe, do you mind if on Wednesday I go out with the guys? It's been a long weekend. Plus, I had the kids the whole time you were gone last weekend. Okay, I guess, but didn't you just go out with them, like, right before I left? Yeah, but I've also been working this entire week, and long hours, no time for myself, if you remember. Who do you think has been taking care of the kids while you've been working so much? Oh, that's exactly right. I've been working so much, and what have I worked for so I could provide a nice life for you and your kids? My kids. My kids? Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, I can, I'll hang with the kids so that you can go out with the guys. We'll just keep this in mind when I want to do something coming up pretty soon here. Okay, fine, like I always do. Are you guys fighting me again? No! No! Hey, uh, wondering, does any of this sound a little too familiar for you? Yeah, well, this is us, and this is how we roll often in our family. Maybe this sounds familiar to your family. Uh, will you thank my family for being my pawns, doing all this crazy stuff? Thanks, guys. Should have heard the conversations when I pitched this idea. It was, uh, it was interesting. Um, you know, no, maybe that narrative sounds way familiar. Maybe, maybe it doesn't. But have you noticed... Have you noticed in your relationships, in, in your family, if, if you're part of a family like that, or, or just in the, in the relationships that you have, the close relationships, those people who kind of make up your so-called family, have you noticed that as you, as you interact, as you live life together, as you relate with one another, have you noticed that subtle or maybe not so subtle thing that is going on under the surface? Where, you know, um, you do something for me, so I give you a point. You do something against me, so I take away a point. Have you noticed that so often in our relationships, there's a stuff going on on the surface, but deep down underneath, we are all keeping score. Trying to figure out who we are indebted to, who's indebted to us, trying to figure out what we are entitled to, what we deserve on the basis of our performance and just kind of where the deficit is, trying to figure out who are our favorites, you know, who is the most compliant, who's the most helpful so that we can give them a special status. So often happens in our relationships. Uh, you know, in Justin and Angie's video, they talked about Dave Ramsey. You've heard of Dave Ramsey. Pretty famous guy. He's financial, personal financial guru. Interesting stuff. He has a lot of different kinds of advice that he gives. Uh, one of the pieces of advice that he gives, and I don't think it's original to him, but one of the pieces of advice he gives is that you should never lend money to a family member. How many of you have you heard that advice before? You can give money to a family member, he says. Just don't lend it. Um, so, some of you heard that, yeah? Some of you found out that that's... 
Have some of you found out the hard way that that's not a thing you should do, maybe, um, even? Yeah, so uh, he talks about that, and he says the reason that you shouldn't do that is because it changes the nature of your relationship. Instead of being a brother and a sister, instead of being a parent and a child, you now become a borrower and a lender. You become someone who is in debt and someone who um, is, is, you know, the one who's, who's, who's the loan officer. And that changes the nature of a relationship. That's why you should never do it. If you want to give a gift, fine, it's a gift, but don't get into that relationship. So what do you think happens when we live life, when we, when we live our relationships this way? Keeping tally marks of who's done what and who's ahead and who's behind. Doesn't this also change the nature of our relationship? Instead of being a husband and a wife, we are now a, a borrower begging for some mercy, begging for some time. Uh, we're a lender. It, it dramatically shifts the dynamic of our relationships. And I think so often in our families, when we get into trouble, when there are big blow-ups and people stop talking to each other and there are rifts that come up in our families and splinter us apart, I think so often what has happened is this. We've let ourselves fall into a dynamic where we are keeping score. Where no longer are we maintaining relationships. It's just all about a series of transactions between uh, two different parties. And it's not only destructive when we do this in our relationship with our family, with, with, uh, with people, but it's really destructive and it's really tempting to do this in our relationship with God, to make it a transactional thing. It's also a very unwise thing because if you're honest, if, you, if you're settling, you know, if you're doing these scores and you got, you know, you got, you got Dion here and you got God here, um, you know, if you're honest, then it starts to look like this pretty quickly, right? You know, God's got lots of points and, and you end up seriously indebted. And that doesn't feel good. In fact, when you're in debt to someone, it changes the nature of the relationship and you start to feel resentful and a bunch of other things. Um, but, but the other option for you, if, if, you're, if you're not honest, is you become dishonest and you start to imagine that you're doing more, you're contributing more to your relationship with God than you actually are. You inflate your sense of righteousness or importance, which also isn't healthy. See, whether it's with people in our family relationships or it's our relationship with God, Doing this thing, keeping score, it's a really devastating thing to any relationship. And we see this happening in real time over the, over the course of Israel's history. The Old Testament people of God, God's chosen people of the Old Testament. Um, they, they were first chosen by God. He set his affection on them. He loved them. He declared them to be his. And then we watch, if you read through the Old Testament, this story of how the relationship gradually deteriorates. As Israel starts to see their relationship with God in a very, like, scorekeeping, transactional way. And uh, I finally get to the place where things are so bad that God threatens to send them into exile. To annihilate their country and send them off to uh, live as captives in a foreign country. And and that's not a punishment, by the way, but that is God disciplining them, trying to give them a wake-up call to come back to him, to restore the relationship to a healthy place because it had gotten so unhealthy. But before God does that, before he sends them into exile, he sends a series of prophets to them uh, to speak words of truth, to try to wake them up. And so 2,700 years ago, there was a prophet by the name of Micah who stood before the people of Israel and tried to talk some sense into them about no longer looking at the relationship with God in this way, but to look at it in a different way. And I think the wisdom of Micah is so impactful still today as it relates to us getting our relationship with God right, but also our relationships with each other. Because I think it's so difficult to try to figure out how do you live life with people, interact with people, give to people, serve to people, and not have it eventually degrade to this kind of scorekeeping? What's the alternative? 
and Micah will show us the way. So we're going to look at Micah chapter 6, starting at verse 1. Micah says, listen to what the Lord says. He's a prophet. He's speaking for the Lord. Listen to what the Lord says. And this is now God speaking. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. So God is is calling a courtroom into session. And you kind of know how this works. You've watched Judge Judy or Judge Joe Brown or... I mean, you've watched them all, right? And you, you don't, you don't want to, and, and those, those courtrooms are exciting. If you've ever been on jury duty, you know it's not near so exciting um, if you've ever done that. Um, but, but God's calling, he's calling a courtroom into session, but he calls the mountains and the hills as his jury. And it, it says that he is going to make a charge against Israel. So it sounds like God has a score to settle, that he is angry with Israel about something. And, um, and he is, but it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily what we think. Uh, by the way, we do this all the time in our relationships, don't we? We put people on trial. You know, we build our cases. We make our arguments. We call witnesses. We get witnesses involved. Hey, do you know what she said to me? And what do you think about this? You, know, you find the person that you know is going to agree with you and you tell them their story and they nod along and they're like, yeah, that's wrong. And you know, we do this all the time. We, we bring evidence up, even if it's old evidence, we bring this up about how people have wronged us. And we're, we're good at the trial thing. Uh, but God does this in front of the mountains. And I want you to see what, I want you to see what he says. His, his accusation's interesting. He says, my people, what have I done to you? So it's not, it's not as much of an accusation against them. It's more of an accusation of how, they, how they've been perceiving him. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? I want you to answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. So God starts to talk about some of their history. And he says, hey, remember Moses? And a lot of us know Moses, the guy who led them out of Egypt and there were plagues and he parted the Red Sea. And he's like, remember, remember? Like, like I sent Moses for you and I brought you out of a horrible life of slavery. He goes on, he says, my people, remember what Balak king of Moab plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Now, most of us don't remember this. This is kind of an obscure story. But there was this King Balak who, uh, when the Israelites were kind of wandering around trying to move into the promised land, he was very threatened by them. So he hired a prophet named Balaam. And he says, here's what I want you to do, Balaam. I want you to speak curses over the Israelites. And uh, Balaam went to go speak curses over the Israelites. But every time he opened his mouth, God gave him a word of blessing to speak instead. And so um, the way it worked is God engineered it. Balak paid Balaam to speak blessings instead of curses over Israel. And then he fulfilled those blessings. God's like, hey, remember that? Like I got in the way of that. And I, I had this prophet bless you rather than curse you. And then I caused all those blessings to come to be. Do you remember when I did that for you? He goes on one more time and he says, remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal? Most of us don't know, know those places, but between Shittim and Gilgal, one's on one side of the promised land, one of them is in the promised land, and in between these two cities was the Jordan River at flood stage. And uh, finally, when it was time for the Israelites to cross into the promised land, God parted the river. You know about the parting of the Red Sea, but he also parted the Jordan River. And people got to walk across the, the flooded Jordan River. Um, they got to walk across it on dry ground. And God says, hey, remember when I did that for you? And I did that so that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. Now, now God brings to all these things to mind and it sort of sounds like he's doing this thing, right? He's saying, score God one million, score Israel five, you should, you're in debt to me. 
But that's not what he's saying. If, if God wanted to say that, he could because it would be true. You know, his accounting's a little better than ours. Certainly better than Corbin's. Corbin, I saw you give yourself extra points there. I, I know what you did. Um, his accounting is, is so much better than ours. And, and yet this is not what God's doing. God is not saying like, hey, you're, you're in debt to me. Instead, what God is trying to do is, is he's trying to remind them of what he's done because he's trying to remind them of his affection, his deep affection for them. See, his accusation isn't, I've done all this stuff and what have you done for me? No. See, his accusation is, you're acting as if I've burdened you in some way. You're you're all resentful and bitter toward me as if I've done something wrong to you. But what have I done wrong to you? Like, let's talk about the things that I've actually done for you, all of the good things that I've done. And see, what has happened is Israel, they were well aware of these things, of all the kindness of God. And yet they started to see it through a very destructive lens. They started to imagine that what God was doing is that he was keeping score for them. And instead of feeling loved, instead of feeling blessed and honored by God's kindness to them, well, they started feeling indebted. And being indebted to someone changes the nature of the relationship. They started feeling burdened by the relationship. Now, you know what this feels like, don't you? Someone gives you a really extravagant gift. And for a moment, you're, you're really honored by that. And you think, wow, amazing, how generous. And then, and then, and then where does your mind go? To the scoreboard. What am I going to get this person when their birthday comes around? Oh my gosh, I'm going to afford a gift this nice, right? Where someone picks up the check and you think, man, that means I'm going to have to pick up the check the next time. Let's find a ch- place that's really cheap so I can afford that. And now, now it's on me, right? Because they're ahead of me. Or, uh, you know, you think about someone doing some act of service. You come home from vacation and maybe your neighbor has taken care of your lawn for you. And, and for a moment you feel like, Man, I, just, I didn't want to have to deal with that and I don't have to. And then where does your mind go? All you can see is the scoreboard. Oh no, I'm way behind now. See, if your relationships are all about keeping score, then there are really only two options for you. If your relationships are about keeping score, then when you're ahead, when you're, when you're ahead, you, that means you will be an arrogant, entitled jerk. N- a person who's no fun to have a relationship with. And if you're behind, then like I said, you'll feel indebted and worthless and bitter and resentful. Again, no fun to be in a relationship with. It's a lose-lose scenario whenever we start doing this in our relationships, whenever we start keeping score. And this is what Israel had done. Somehow along the way, it, it, it became not about God's love for them and his loving action and how generous and good and kind. They stopped feeling special and loved and cherished. And instead, they started seeing themselves as being indebted. And so when God came around, it was like the landlord coming around and your rent's two months past due because you're like way behind and you're like you know, pulling the shades and turning off the lights. You're like, let's hide. That's what their relationship had become. In fact, God gives... Um, voice to this. He describes what Israel has been saying, and we learn a little bit more about what's happened in their relationship. He's done all these really nice things for them, and now Israel, this is the kind of stuff they've been saying back in response to all of that really nice stuff. They've been saying, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God, right? Because the score's way, you know, not equal here. We're in his debt. So, oh no, what am I going to do now? What do I have to bring before him to satisfy him? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves 
a year old? Is, is that enough or do I need more? Maybe I need thousands of rams. Will he be pleased with me then if I do that? Because I'm way behind here. I'm way in debt. So maybe I need to bring thousands of rams. Will he be pleased with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? There's some hyperbole here. But this is how it can get, right, in your relationship with God. If, if you just see the weight of your debt, of how good he is and how not good you are, if you lose sight of his heart for you, it becomes so transactional. And again, when, when you're living in debt to someone in a relationship, it doesn't foster a relationship. It changes the nature of the relationship. It builds resentment and bitterness. And, and you're constantly feeling like you got to hustle to get yourself out of it. And so, so the Israelites, instead of seeing God as being amazing and loving and loving him back, they're saying, God, do you want calves? Do you want, do you want 10,000 rams or rivers of olive oil? Do you want my firstborn, God? What do you want? Just let me know. Write the check. I want to get you off my back. And what was once a relationship founded on love? What were once actions that God was doing because he loved Israel? They became these increasing burdens on Israel's back. And they found themselves in this constant game of trying to say, what do I have to do to get you off my back? You know, if I just schedule a date night and get a babysitter, will you stop bothering me about working late? And if I just get you this gift, will that make up for all the times I forgot to give you a gift? In fact, will that make up for the next three times that I forget? Or, uh, you know, if, if I say I'm sorry really early in the argument, even if I don't mean it, will that give me at least two more get out of arguments free cards where I can just be like, hey, I apologize first time, you know, this is on you. Isn't that the stuff we do in relationships? When we're keeping score, when it becomes transactional, when relationships go tit for tat like this, and they so easily do, our relationships are headed for trouble. It is impossible to keep a relationship healthy then. And, and that's what happened with Israel. That's often what happens with us and our relationship with God. We, we mistake his action in what it means. And so we run away and hide. And we do that with each other. See, now this may feel impossible for you because you're so locked into the scorekeeping method of, of relationships. And so you say, but yeah, but how do, how do you ever break free from this? How do you ever get out of this dynamic? Micah's about to tell us how. God is going to speak through Micah to show us another way to live in relationship with him and with each other that will help our relationship stay healthy and whole, that will help keep our families together, keep our relationship with God intact. Here's what he says. It's either Micah speaking or maybe this is the mountains giving their deliberation. I don't know. But here's the answer. He has shown you, O oh mortal, what is good. And it's not the... Thousands of rams and the ten thousands of rivers of olive oil. That's not what God wants. That's not what's good. That's not the response God is looking for. You're mistaken. You're playing some game. That's not what God is in this for. He has shown you, O oh mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? What is this all about? What does God want for you? Three things. To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is a great verse to just memorize because I think it'll transform your relationship with God. These three phrases have so much power, but if you can learn to live these things, this will change just how you think about your relationship with God. But it also, when you bring this into your human relationships, will begin to transform those as well. Let's talk about that. First, let's talk about acting justly. I think often in our families, our families are the place, places where there is the least amount of justice. 
We, we tend to just kind of believe because you're related to me, because we're family, I, I, can, I can do all kinds of things against you and you have to forgive me. You have to get over it. Isn't that true? I mean, let's just acknowledge that sometimes we may treat our family members better than anyone else, but often we treat our family members worse than anyone else. I'll hear my kids fighting sometimes and I'll just stop and I'll go like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Do you realize that if, I, if we were out on the playground and there was some kid talking to one of my kids that way, you know, like if there's some other kid, if this was a friend from school saying those things or doing those things to you, I wouldn't stand for it. So why do you think I'm gonna stand for you guys talking to each other? Right? You ever say that in your house? You ever heard that? Yeah. My parents said it to me. That's why I say it to my kids. That's how it goes, right? You're just like... Like the lack of justice, the way, the, way, the way we treat each other. I mean, the things that I'll say to my wife, the woman I've lived life with for the last 17 years of marriage, the last 20 years in a relationship, the, you know, three kids later, and she's, she's a saint for putting up with me, and the things that I would say to her. I'd be mortified if, if you heard some of them, and there are things that I probably wouldn't say to a, to a stranger unless they really made me mad, I might say them, but not to my wife, and yet I do, right? Often in our families, those are the people that we treat with the least amount of justice, and then we get older and there's the gossip and the backbiting and, you know, we borrow stuff and we don't return it and we, and we take from each other and, and, and our, our dynamics can get so ugly. Maybe this is the problem. If you've got strained relationships in your family, if your family's falling apart or has fallen apart, maybe this is a problem. Maybe one of you, you know, you've been so caught up in the score, maybe one of you has just forgotten, not, not, not to pay any attention to the score, but for you to act justly, and maybe you have acted in ways that are not just, that are not right, you have not done what's right, you have not defended or protected those other members of your family. And if that's you, then today you can begin to make that right. And, and it doesn't matter what someone's done to you, but, but can you do what's right? Can you be just? Can you defend and protect. Now, for some of you, that's your problem, and you can confess that, and you can work through that. For some of you, you're sitting here today saying, yeah, that's exactly the problem. Someone else has been so unjust to me, and that's why our relationships are broken, and I understand, but that's why what Micah says next is so important. Act justly, love mercy. Next, he says to love mercy. Notice before he didn't say love justice, he said act justly, but love mercy. See, the problem in so many of our relationships is not that someone did something to someone else and it was bad. I mean, that's the narrative we tell, right? And the reason I don't talk to my sister anymore, the reason I, we, we haven't falling out is because, because someone did something to someone else and it was bad. But that's actually not the reason that most families, most relationships fall apart. The reason, according to Micah, is that someone did something to someone else and it was bad and that someone else refused to be a person of mercy. So no matter what someone has done to you, no matter how unjust they have been, you can be a person who loves mercy. Now, to love mercy, man, that's, that's no small thing. Um, and, uh, you know, because, like, we make so much of what people do against us. Um, I, I know people who are still hung up about the fact that someone stole $200 from them and they're mad and they'll tell you about it. Not good for nothing. They, they took my money and, it's, and I get it. $200 is a lot of money, but at the same time, you know, I know people who have forgiven someone who's ripped them off for $200,000. And uh, I, I know people who are still mad about something someone said to them at Thanksgiving five years ago. 
And I know it sounds bad, but you don't know what she said. And I know people who have forgiven horrific acts of abuse. See, it's, it's not always about the inf- infraction, the injustice committed against us. The real question is, the real question is, can I be a person who loves mercy? And that doesn't mean you have to put up with abuse and there may be some relationships that need to end because they're unhealthy. But even so, can you be a person who loves mercy? Now, part of mercy and loving mercy is forgiveness. I love what Proverbs 19 says. It says, it is to one's glory to overlook an offense. I mean, we don't think this way. If someone wronged you, then you've got a right to make it right. And if they offended you, you should call it out. But Proverbs says, no, it is to your glory if you can love mercy more than justice. If you, if you can love mercy and you can just overlook it, just, just let it go. Or maybe there's some other things that you can't just let go. Look what James says. James says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Every time, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In God's eyes, mercy wins. He chooses to be merciful over judgmental. And in our relationships, mercy will always win over a, over a judgmental attitude. So where there's no justice, mercy can triumph, James says. I love how Paul puts it in Colossians. Paul says, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. I think those are some of the most underappreciated words of scripture. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Yeah, God forgives us, so we're supposed to forgive each other. Yeah, but forgive in the same way that the Lord forgives you. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. So how does the Lord forgive us? If you're going to forgive as he forgave us, and we need to know that, right? So how does he forgive us? Well, he forgives us completely. Doesn't hold back 10%. I'll forgive you 90% of the way, but I'm keeping this 10% in case I need it later for ammunition. Bring it back up. He forgives us completely. Uh, He forgives us undeservedly. He forgives us when we're not 100% sorry. Get this. God forgives you before you've even done the wrong Definitely before you've ever asked, but before you've even done the wrong. Before you ever were, Jesus was giving his life for every sin you would ever commit. That's how, that's how the Lord forgives. He forgives undeservedly before you even ask. Uh, and he forgives repeatedly. Repeatedly. It's no three strikes and you're out. It's, hey, this is time 10,000 in one that you've done the same thing. Okay, I forgive you. See, how does the Lord forgive us? Completely, undeservedly, repeatedly. That's how we're forgiven. And doesn't that feel amazing to live under that kind of forgiveness? See, see that's what mercy looks like. And, and so Paul says, hey, you should, you should be a person of mercy for others. Now, forgiveness is just part of this. I think mercy is actually bigger than that. Loving mercy is actually bigger than just being a forgiver. I'm good at forgiveness. I'm not actually good at mercy because the other part of mercy is letting people off your impossibly high standards. You know what I'm talking about? It's letting people off the hook of your impossibly high standards, realizing, recognizing that people are flawed and broken and yet loving them anyway and not expecting them to be more than they are. I'll forgive people all day long. But that kind of mercy, I struggle with it. And yet God begs his people to love mercy. It's not about keeping score. It's not about catching up. It's not about settling scores. God just says, if, if you would love mercy, 
you would value that more than anything else, than being right, than justice, anything else, if you would love mercy, it would change everything. Finally, through Micah, we find out um, that, that God invites us to walk humbly. Now, humility is something that I think we're so confused about. I know I get confused about it too. Uh, on one hand, there are people in our world who are you know, trying to make a following, 10 million followers. They're just trying to gather a crowd around them wherever they go. Everyone's looking for their few minutes of fame. Uh, and then there are some people who kind of do the opposite. They look like they're humble, except it's, it's like they're bragging about how humble they are. It's like, you know, the blogger moms who are like, just, I'm a hot mess, girlfriend. And they got like all of these people and they're making a name for themselves talking about how terrible they are right? That's, that's not humility. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, this is what humility is. True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not standing in front of the world and being like, I'm so terrible. Now clap for me because I told you how terrible I am. True humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. It's just losing the preoccupation with self. See, humility is not, I'm terrible at everything, I'm bad at everything, no one likes me, everybody hates me, I'll go eat worms. That's not it, right? It's just not, not thinking about your greatness or your terribleness at all and spending more time thinking about others. So, so humility is, is a great word. I think we're so confused about it. Let me just offer you two other words that I think you can, you can understand and put into your relationships. Listen and encourage. If you want to walk humbly, learn to do these two, two things. It'll transform relationships. Just listen and encourage. It takes great humility to listen to someone and not offer advice, not be the hero, or the rescuer, not come in and, and say, oh yeah, me too, and then make it all about you. Just to listen to someone it takes great humility. I'm terrible at it. I can tell you how terrible I am about stuff. That doesn't make me humble. I'm a terrible listener, which shows me I've got something to grow on here. But just to sit and, and to make what someone else needs to say your whole focus and not make it about you and what you want to say or if you're done listening or you've heard enough. That's powerful, right? Just to listen. And then to encourage people. Instead of always gathering people to cheer you on and support you and to help you fulfill your dreams, to make other people's dreams and, and their life pursuit part of your focus and to pour into them and cheer them on and encourage them. It's an incredibly humble thing to do. It's because it's not, it's thinking about yourself less and thinking about other people instead. And here's what I know. I, I don't know any families who do these two things well, who know how to listen and encourage. I don't know any families who do those things well, who've got like a whole bunch of broken relationships and so-and-so doesn't talk to so-and-so and it's all a big mess. No. Because if you can walk humbly before each other in these ways, if you can learn to serve each other, Again, it's, it just changes the dynamic of your relationships. See, see what happens when we shift from, from living life with each other like this, keeping score, to doing this, acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly? What happens is that our relationships shift from being transactional where we're in debt to someone else or we're gloating and entitled and deserving and that's no way to have a relationship. Our relationships shift from transactional to Christ-like. See, if you have any, any doubt about how powerful these things are, just think about Jesus in light of these three things. Jesus came into the world and he was always just. He always did what was right. But more than doing what was right, he loved mercy, didn't he? In fact, when, when stuff was happening to him that was wrong, that was unjust, when he was being accused of crimes he didn't commit, when they were sentencing him and it was all a sham and horribly unjust, what did he choose? 
He chose not to stand for justice in that moment. He chose to love mercy. And he poured out his life. He took our judgment on himself because he loved mercy even more than justice in that moment. And and don't we love Jesus because he was the exalted prince of the universe and yet he came to walk humbly. He made his life about others. He made his life about you and me, listening, encouraging, serving, blessing. See, even if, you, even if you're just checking Jesus out and you're, you're not like sold out for him yet and you're just kind of checking, checking him out, isn't this, isn't this what keeps enticing you and keeps your curiosity open and keeps you coming back? Because, because he's so different. And see, when we can make the shift from being transactional and doing relationships this way to doing relationships the way Jesus does, if, if we can ask God's help in embodying these things, then, it, then it'll, change. it'll change our relationships. It'll change our families. It'll even change our relationship with God. So here's the thing. I didn't tell you anything new today, did I? Uh, and you could leave today and just go, I went to church and I didn't learn anything new and what a disappointment. But here's the point. This isn't hard to understand. It's just really, really hard to do. So what I want to do right now is give you some time to think about your relationships and maybe even thinking about them already and just to wrestle in a conversation with Jesus. And and, uh, maybe there's something you already know that uh, is the problem in your relationships, not with the other person, but with you. Don't focus on them. Focus on you. Maybe there's a need for you to be just. Maybe you, you like mercy, but you don't love it. Or maybe humility has been a problem for you. I'm going to invite you to take some time. Sit before Jesus and invite him in because he understands these things. He's lived these things and he can meet you in your struggle. So take some moment. Take a moment and talk to Jesus.